Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Robert Yeager and the Tao Foundation. All right, welcome to the news. It's a news that we appreciate and approach with delight and apprehension, both. Um, in the second half of the news, we will talk about Hollywood, which is the new Ryan Murphy miniseries. Miniseries sounds like such an antiquated, you know, 70s and 80s term, but I guess they just are miniseries. Anyway, this is a miniseries that looks at uh, post-World War II Hollywood uh, about rising stars, some of whom, like Rock Hudson, are names that we know, and others uh, are fictional personages or perhaps thinly disguised real people. Um, and that's all I'm going to say about it for now. I'm also going to tell you that uh, our panelists today on the news are Carolyn Payne, actress, comedian, dancer, founder, director, and choreographer of Kinetic Dance. Irene Papoulis teaches writing at Trinity College. They are both joining us by, via Skype. I am at home. And um, so... Let me just give you some context for all this. So typically on the nose, you know, we have a bunch of links to things and we decide which things are interesting and which things you know, are would rise to the level of topics. We'll talk about this story. We'll talk about this particular thing. And there are occasionally, and this is one of the occasions, times where we really don't quite manage to do that, but we seem to be having an interesting conversation if we just published all the emails that we had sent to one another over the last 48 hours. Can we have that interesting conversation on the air? That is the question right now. So I'm going to pose it this way. I mean, really, if you looked at the emails, there'd be nine different ways to start this conversation. But let me try to start it this way. So, Irene, I'm going to suggest that a way to start is who is it better to be and who is it better for the world that one is? Matt Damon or Val Kilmer? Now, let me give you some context to the audience for this. So Matt Damon, it turns out, is living in the village of Dalkey, uh, Ireland, right now, because he was there with his family. He was going to shoot a Ridley Scott movie. Things went sideways. They decided to stay, or maybe they had to decide to stay. Uh, and they are having a wonderful, blissful time, and he's very much embraced the culture of the area. He even called into a local radio show. People see him out uh, walking around with, you know, a plastic bag full of swim trunks and stuff. And uh, he's, uh, they call, they're starting to call him Matt O'Damon because Matt Damon is kind of famously uh, good at keeping his life in balance. His artistic output, I would say, is pretty significant. Uh, also, in the background, he's involved in producing worthy things, and he had that Greenlight Project, and he's a big humanitarian and a political activist and a family man, and he's kind of the celebrity you wouldn't believe existed. And Val Kilmer, based on a New York Times profile uh, in the magazine by Taffy Brodeur, um, is a mess. Uh, and he's a mess partly because he's always been a very odd person who rejected stardom, even though even as it was thrust to him in big franchise movies like Batman, uh, a lot of people were saying he was too crazy to work with. He was saying he didn't want any of that. 
then he's also a very avid Christian scientist. He eventually developed throat cancer. The uh, surgeries robbed him of his recognizable speaking voice. He's actually uh, semi-permanently on a feeding tube these days and doesn't look like himself at all anymore, but is still, still reaching out and insisting on a kind of artistic vision, the most persistent of which involves a blending of the teachings of Mary Baker Eddy, founder of uh, Christian Science, which, as I say, he's a Christian Science practitioner, if I didn't say that already, uh, and uh, Mark Twain, whom he vastly admires. The fact that Mark Twain detested Mary Baker Eddy uh, is, is either intriguing to him or something he just dismisses out of hand. I can't really tell which. So that was a long wind up. Um, but so, Irene, I don't know. Take the ball from here. First of all, am I even barking up the right tree of what we need to talk about? This also has something to do with what kind of culture we turn to, we're turning to right now, what kind of culture we're going to have going forward. And as we go along here, we're going to talk, I think, a little bit about this idea that companies like Twitter are suggesting that showing up at work will be forever voluntary as opposed to compulsory. So, Irene, the ball is yours. The court is okay. yours. Well, yeah. Okay. So the question that you started out with is who is it better to be, you know, and if there's a choice, um, I would say probably, I mean, I'm certainly the majority of people would say Matt Damon, of course, you know, and he's sort of the golden ideal and we see him as a golden ideal. Um, and in fact, people who are not like Matt Damon do everything they can, including, you know, famous movie stars to try to, uh, you know, most of them try to try to give off the image of in some way being that way in terms of just having things together, having an exciting life, being wonderful, doing great things, etc. Um, but some people, I think some and, and some, you know, somebody like Val Kilmer is so much not like that, that he can't even, well, it's not that he can't pretend, it's that he refute, part of his not being like that-ness is that he refuses to pretend to be like that, to pretend to be anything other than the wacky person that he actually is. And I think for those kind of people, you know, I think, and, it, and it probably humans divide themselves that way also. I mean, I, I definitely I would say that I identify with the Val Kilmers of the world, not with the Matt, the Matt Damons. And so I find a real um, sense of a certain kind of familiarity or recognition in somebody like Val Kilmer, who just sort of says, nope, I'm not going to play the game. I'm not going to play the game the way you want me to. I can't. I, I, I resist it, you know. And so that's, kind of attractive in a way to certain people, but it could also disgust us if we're struggling with that, you know? So I think it's, I think it's an interesting, you know, like Joaquin Phoenix is like that too. Like, what do you do if you're a famous movie star uh, and everyone wants you to be more like Matt Damon, but you feel like you're not, you know, I think it's really hard for people. And, you know, these are all men. I mean, they're, they're, it's probably interesting to think about how this pattern or this duality exists in women, it would be a little bit different. But I think at least for these men who tried it, you know, like, you know, like when Joaquin Phoenix did all that weird stuff on David Letterman and everything, you know, it's sort of like trying, trying to resist, trying to express resistance in some way or, or some kind of non mainstreamness, but it's really hard because you're in that box of being a movie star. Um, and so Val Kilmer, but really went to an extreme now, even though he was always like that. I think that was always part of his appeal too. Even when he was a famous movie idol, there was something very edgy about him and that's what gives him, you know, I think that gives, that gives those stars an appeal, their edginess. Um, but 
you know, they're not supposed to go too far or else people get really mad at them. Right. And so, Carolyn, I mean, I think, you know, there's there's that issue of the resistance that Val Kilmer might have felt towards uh, efforts to make him a star. But there's also an issue to which Irene is alluding, I think, at the end here of his just general brokenness. I mean, there is there appears to be. Well, there's obviously something medically wrong with him, but there's, I think, also like Joaquin Phoenix, we we think of him as not necessarily participating in the reality that the rest of us do. But we also tend to think and Irene said, you know, she thinks she's more like Val Kilmer than Matt Damon. I think a lot of us who do creative things think, well, I'm not that normal, nor do I want to be that normal because that is not part of the engine that drives me to do what I do. That wasn't yeah, really a question, I, Carolyn. But. I, I think that with Val Kilmer, you have... Uh, I, I, so Val Kilmer, to me, I kind of like came late to the party with. I know how handsome he was as a young man, uh, but when I, he was a young man and this big Hollywood star when I was like too young to really get it. Um, and... I, I think that in reading this article, I, I, I know this, I, I've seen this with other people, and we've seen this with people that we know if you work in an industry like this, where he just kind of struggled with the duality of like the artist versus the man. Uh, obviously, specifically with like acting, if you're going into that and your goal is to become this major, you know, film star you're going to have to grapple with this public image as well as like your your craft as an artist. I think it's a lot easier if you're an actor in theater that you can kind of go on stage and do a role and you can leave and you can have your personal life. Whereas there is something very unique to being a Hollywood actor that like makes you just have to live your entire life in a fishbowl. So that's where we see a lot of celebrities, how they choose to... And we're seeing that specifically right now a lot more than maybe we ever wanted to, where everyone is going, you know, live from their living room. And we're getting these glimpses into everyone's personal life uh, that before was kind of a little bit more exclusive to just how uh, it would be portrayed in like media or magazines or, you know, in a more controlled setting. It seems to be kind of more just wild and free right now where we're just seeing everything a lot more. Um, well, so for Val Kilmer specifically in reading this article, I just got this sense where he obviously, I mean, he was just never comfortable with kind of fitting in that box and then uh, kind of wanted to create this whole persona uh, that was just completely, you know, completely like the anti-Matt Damon, not that uh, Hollywood like leading man perfect image, which I think is kind of. Cool. I think I think we need both types. I think we need, uh, you know, those wild cards and those kind of sad figures or, you know, very conflicted people who have that kind of anger as artists and that that kind of drive. And then we need like, you know, the, the Matt Damons as well. You kind of need that balance. It keeps it interesting. I, yeah, I agree. Uh, yeah. What were you going to say? Yeah, go ahead. Can I? Yeah, I, I mean, I'm just thinking about the idea of personal. You know, it's sort of like I think sometimes a lot of times with those people, and maybe I, I'm, I don't know if I know enough about Val Kilmer to know, but there's something about having a personal life versus having a public life. You know, like 
And so there's the, the, you know, because everyone wants, it's true. If somebody is a movie star, everyone wants to know, like, what do you have for breakfast? What's going on in your life and all that. And so sometimes it seems like people who are considered quote unquote difficult, like Matt, like Val Kilmer might, you know, sometimes it seems like an expression of a desire to have some kind of distance between their sort of real messy private life and their public life. Whereas others try to sort of construct a reality that they're just a great person and a wonderful person and everything is go- always going well for them and everything. So, um, I don't know, but it, yeah, I don't know. And so now I'm thinking we like to see into the, we like to see, it's true that there's something really sort of like on Saturday night live, what we can see their houses or those, their real houses. We can see into their, some kind of private experience that, you know, we just have such a, we just have such a relentless, desire to get inside people's private lives make them and make them public and that's well, like let, a, me, a let me see if i can yeah. uh, guide us in, in uh, a second direction here which is i think one of the things that emerges in the val kilmer piece is here is a person who has either volitionally or because of compulsions sacrificed most of the vestiges of normalcy t- for the pursuit of art and he seems to be driven toward if not necessarily capable of a, a kind of pure creativity, you know, he's really trying to do stuff that's not the least bit commercial. And and suddenly, like all of us, he has run into this one particular brick wall. And there's this moment where he's, you know, he's got this animated short that involves Mark Twain somehow, and he 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 thought he was going to be showing it at South by Southwest. He thought he was going to be showing it at Cannes, and and he's suddenly thinking, well, is that none of that going to happen? And and the author Taffy Brodeur, who has a third name that I'm leaving out, uh, says you can't cancel the world, right? Bad things happen, but you still need art. And I thought, right, right, you still need art. You still need forward momentum. You still need to believe that all your effort wasn't for nothing, that we could, we will survive a dark moment in history. And that was, and, and that when that happens, we won't be left without the things that made those moments decipherable and meaningful and therefore tolerable. And so, Carolyn, and this is something that you're experiencing in your own way right now, too, I think, is if what you were planning to do this year and the year after and the year after was to create art and to have it performed in front of audiences or to perform it in front of audiences, if what you were going to do involved getting people together for this kind of thing, which does paradoxically seem so nourishing to people at a time of fear and and uncertainty that, you know, I mean, there's a real question about like, who's going to be able to create what art? If you're a painter in a studio in New Mexico, you're probably in pretty good shape, at least for a while. But the performing arts are in rough shape. And if that's your reason for living, you've sacrificed your whole life for it. (laughs) It's a strange bargain right now. Yeah, thanks, Colin. (laughs) Um, Obviously, so I'm a performer, and this experience is a weird one for me. I am totally trying to figure out how to create art, how to, like, rethink everything that I had planned to do and uh, kind of create new ideas. It's, It's just such a... Because so as a performer, like you need an audience and it is such a hard, it's an, it's a a readjustment to trying to figure out to create art that you're going to put out there. And, and in some ways, like some things, you know, like sketch comedy or things like that, you can still create, but it's just such a different, 
it's it's a really weird time and everyone I think is trying to like recalibrate and figure out what is working for the arts and it's also really scary because you're hearing about Broadway shows that are just not coming back now and uh theaters that had to cancel their entire season up through 2021 and maybe beyond um I know for me personally I had several things cancel in the upcoming months and uh I don't know if they will ever be rescheduled. Um, uh, it was interesting, the film festival thing, I had a couple short comedy films in film festivals and they canceled them and they just like sent out like your certificate or whatever if you want anything. And it just felt so much less satisfying. And it, I think that that's exactly like right now, I am just spending a lot of time like just kind of creating things wildly or doing little collaborations and just doing all sorts of things because you're you're sort of, I explained it in email, like treading water right now and trying to see like what, where you're going to be able to swim to from here because it, it is so unknown. Uh, so that's kind of a weird, it's a weird place to be in as an artist because as an artist, you sort of live in the unknown all the time and you thrive in it. Like I spend most of my time like auditioning for things and not knowing what my next gig is going to be. And there's an excitement to that, but this is a whole different kind of unknowing that's, really uh, nerve wracking, but yet also kind of exciting because you have to create new challenges for yourself and like push yourself. So I kind of think like some of the stuff that will get created by artists is gonna be really cool. I'm excited to see what uh, what I force myself to come up with and what I do and what other artists do. And uh, just because like it, we're in such a weird, such a weird place where like things that worked before are certainly not going to work now, and who knows what's going to work again. Right. There's well, a know, way... You, go ahead, Arden. Well, I was just going to say, it's like a little bit of Val Kilmer is good because you have to have... Like, the thing that he has is the brazen belief that his idea is interesting and he's going to follow it, even if the rest of the world is saying, are you kidding me? You know, you're mixing those two people and you're this animated and, you know, but you you have to have that belief, you know, maybe somebody who's more more of a Matt Damon is more likely to just say, well, I, I, I just can't do it. I'm a performer and there's no stage and I can't do it, period. Whereas if you harness your 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 Val Kilmer creative brazenness, you ha I mean, you have to harness your Val Kilmer creative brazenness, which I know Carolyn has a lot of. <laughs> well, I, I think there's also another part of this is, and you know, we did read this piece uh, about, uh, and most people are now aware of this too, that Twitter has essentially said that most people who work for Twitter don't ever have to come back to work. They can work from wherever they want to work from. Um, and, and I'm very suspicious of that for reasons maybe that I'll cover later. But I mean, there is the thing about the humanness and physicality of a lot of what we do, whether it's art or teaching uh, or whatever. I've One of the things that I've missed is you know, over the years, uh, Steve Metcalf and Jim Chapdelaine and Latanya Farrell and I have done more and more things that involve music and, and uh, the performance of music. Singing near anybody else right now is an incredibly dangerous thing to do. You know, it's just, it is just really, really dangerous to sing, you know, in the same room anywhere near anybody. And that's going to be the case, I would assume, until there are, are, are vaccines. I also remember this, uh, production of Romeo and Juliet at a Hartford stage that um, starred the young and at this point mostly undiscovered Callista Flockhart as uh, as Juliet. But it just so happened that 
a lot of the people in that production were kind of sprayers as they spoke their their <laughs> iambic pentameter. If the light was just right, you could catch this huge amount of spray in the air as these people were delivering their lines. And you just think about that now, and it's incredibly dangerous. And and you know th- that's disturbing to me because you know uh, whether that's the case for you as a teacher irene or for you as a performer carolyn that's a thing we're probably going to have to wait out you know it's that that one's not going to go away right away anyway yeah you mean the human the human the the human experience of somebody else singing or or even speaking loudly or yeah like that's why we can't be on the nose together because we would we would talk you know and just just (laughs) talking together is like you know spraying all of our whatever all over everything yeah i mean it's you know and so i i just don't want us all to go online as a result and just and stay there you know i mean i feel like there's there's some kind of um, some people are saying, you know, well, great, we can just keep whatever we can do. Now we can do it online. So let's just always do it online, which I think is, you know, n- no, we can't do that. Yeah. It's funny because for, like prior to this, if you would ask me in like January, I would have said that one of my favorite things is having time to just hang out on the couch, cuddle my cat, like not having, you know, having that day off. And I now have discovered that is actually my least favorite thing. (laughs) Um, I definitely am somebody, I thrive from like going and doing and experiencing and performing and being, I always thought of myself as like not like liking to go to parties. And I mean, I don't necessarily, but I definitely crave that, that human interaction and uh, like kind of making people laugh and, uh, it's so funny because uh, I think a lot of people who, uh, who like me, kind of thought like, "Oh, I, I would, you know, love just like staying home." We're now discovering that that I guess it's one of those grass is always greener things. But uh, I feel like after this, like I'm gonna jump at every invitation. If you invite me to the opening of an envelope, I will show up. <laughs> <laughs> that is what I have learned here. That, um, but, but I also it, think I, I also think you know there's this idea I, I call it the narcissism of the present moment that we are living through this incredible transformation transformation and we often think we are living through a transform uh, an incredible and indelible transformation and we're usually partly right but not entirely right really during the digital revolution there was a comparable thing that happened you know you can put it somewhere in the late 90s uh, going up to 2000 there was this you know incredible aha moment where people said you know nobody really has to be anywhere you know i mean we we can be wherever we need to be and we can connect and we can do all these things and i remember this commercial that came out of all things i'm pretty sure it was an airline commercial but and i thought it was a great commercial it was about this boss kind of older guy who's talking to his sales force and their sales are down and a couple of their clients are leaving them and he says you know what we have lost the personal touch uh, you know, we are, we went too far in this other direction. We're going to have to start getting face to face with people again. And he goes, in fact, I'm leaving right now. He's like the CEO to, va- to visit that very old valued client of ours who wants to cancel. And I'm going to go talk to him and I 
going to go catch U.S. Air or whatever, whatever it was. But I, I remember seeing that and thinking, you know, this commercial has a point, which is we think there are these transformations and we think that there are going to be these permanent changes and there will be some permanent changes from this. But I'm guessing not as many as we assume or as we're buying into. I mean, Irene, I don't think Twitter is going to really do that. <laughs> I think Twitter you know, is going to figure yeah. out pretty quickly that they need people in the building. Oh, you mean letting people work from home? Yeah, yeah definitely. And yeah. people won't want to work from home after a point. But I was also just having a flashback to one time on the nose, probably like five years ago or something, We or more than that, when we were talking about the emojis, like the likes on Facebook, and they had all the different emotions as emojis. And I was saying like, oh my gosh, you know, people, you know, aren't going to express their feelings. They're just going to have an emoji instead of their feelings. This is horrible. It's the, you know, it's the end of something. It's a tragedy. And now we've just kind of like totally integrated that and still we can still express our emotions in various ways you know so yeah i think um the narcissism of the present moment is a good way to put it in the sense that maybe it's not as you know but i hope i mean you know then there's i don't know we think about our government what's going to happen to our government how's it going to change is it going to just go back to normal or is it not going to be able to go back to normal um but it I don't, you know, I don't know. I mean, it just, I think so much a part of our lives as Americans is about, you know, our government is stable. It stays the same. We have the rule of law. Everything is just going to keep going as, as it always has. And that feels shaken in a way that I feel like it hasn't in my lifetime, you know, our lifetimes as much as it is right now. But, but it's true that, you know, people are going to endure in some way. Well, one I thing that I can tell you is that if Carolyn likes something uh, of yours on Facebook, you really have to go find Carolyn in person and find out whether she meant it or not, because she's kind of a <laughs> reflexive clicker of like. Um, but yeah, I don't know. I'm you know, I was quoting. My support. <laughs> yeah, that's true. That's true. Um, you know, I, in our emails, I was quoting Yates as I tend to do. All things fall and are built again, and those who build them again are gay. You know, and and there is that sense things. Carolyn, in the way that Irene is suggesting, nothing is really permanent. Uh, on the other hand, the, its lack of permanence is an invitation. This goes back to what you were saying at the beginning of the conversation. There's part of you that's looking forward to figuring out what it is you can create, what can you can build up that's different from what you've done before. Yeah, because uh, like I said, I think that it's going to be, it's always exciting to have a new challenge. Uh, and I think like we're all beyond just artists. I think like we as people right now are just facing a whole bunch of, of challenges of just how to, you know, how, how to cope, how to create a normal day to day existence. Uh, so, you know, it's for me, this is like, it's just kind of this neat activity of, of, of pushing outside of the, of a box that I have found that I am uncomfortable in. And I think like that is when cool art gets made. I think that's when changes get made up from like a government standpoint, business standpoint. So, uh, when people are saying things are never going to be the same, there's a part of me that wants to be really hopeful that that means that there are going to be a lot of things that come out better from this and like people who come out better. Um, so you know, maybe, maybe we have that or right. maybe. 
we or know, maybe not. Yeah. I mean, we know, for example, that this crisis has produced one new celebrity. Maybe there's a whole bunch of them that I'm not even thinking about. But this young comedian and comedy writer, Sarah Cooper, you know, who's just sort of figured out how to capture a certain part of this crisis, mainly by these rather complex lip syncing TikTok videos that also go up on other parts of social media, which... I mean, when I say everybody's uh, addicted to them or getting excited, I mean, she's getting raves from J.K. Rowling. People like I know. That. It's, so, it's so funny because, like, everyone, um, you know, I've been doing all these, like, Skype meetings and emailing and working with a bunch of comedy writer friends. And uh, I am so resistant to TikTok. I am just refusing to partake in it. I don't know why I am such, I am so anti-TikTok, but I love watching other people's, but I just, I, it's like, I don't want to open that Pandora's box for myself. I don't know why I am so. Is, you can only put a video. Is that how I've never, I don't really know. I yeah, saw on I that. Mean, the, yeah. The there, it's, it's a video driven platform. And, uh, a lot of, a lot of the stuff started like dance challenges. And, uh, then there are lip syncing videos that are, you know, they're often very clever, um, there, there have been some where people just, they, they like take Trump's speech and do these hysterical lip syncs to them. Well, that's, that's been Sarah Cooper's thing. Right. And one of the things and, that she has said recently, Irene, is, you know, uh, because this has become kind of a sensation and all kinds of famous people have come forward to, to praise her work, but the average people are saying, well, you should just be on Saturday Night Live. You'd be perfect for Saturday Night Live. And of course, Saturday Night Live at this moment is, making exactly this kind of thing because they can't make their usual thing. And at a certain point, Irene Sarah Cooper tweeted, uh, one thing I've discovered is apparently it's really incredibly easy to get on Saturday Night Live, <laughs> which is, of course, not the truth. But, um, yeah, I mean, I, I wonder, Irene, if ultimately all of this, some of the stuff that comes out of this is going to be like an old gas mask sitting on a shelf in England in 1936, you know, a reminder of the last thing that we, they went through, but not necessarily a symbol of everything that's going on at that moment. I should have picked a, a different well, year, like 1930, maybe. Well, hopefully our our own, you know, cloth face masks will be sitting on a, on a counter also. But yeah, I mean, she, but she, I just want, just going back to Sarah Cooper for one second, she just is so good at it. You know, a lot of people could try that, but she is really, really good at it. The lip syncing of Trump. So anyway. There, yeah, there's, uh, well, there's a way in which she's using her face uh, uh -huh. in, in a way that, you know, I mean, usually people who break out in situations like this are mastering the new medium. You know, they, they are the ones who figure this out. And there's something about the size and scale and nature of TikTok that is ideal for Sarah Cooper and that she seems to know how to play to. Uh, and, and she combined it perfectly with this moment when the government seems, seems absurd to us. Uh, and our situation seems disturbing, too. All right, Carolyn, you get the last word. Oh, no, I guess I got the last word. I'm being told that we need a break right now. <laughs> so let's take our break. We'll come back. We'll talk about Hollywood.
And we're back. We're back with the news. And the news today is Carolyn Payne, actress, comedian, dancer, uh, Irene Papoulis, a teacher of writing at Trinity College. Uh, so we've been watching Hollywood, a seven-part miniseries on Netflix. It is created by Ryan Murphy uh, and Ian Brennan. My, Ryan Murphy, he who created Nip Tuck and Glee, an American horror story, and the dramatization of the OJ case uh, and Pose. Uh, and and I, by the way, confess that I have not seen Pose, but I, people rave about that one. So he has created an evocation of post-war Hollywood in which a series of emerging stars are bumping up against exploitive realities uh, and uh, a generally lurid and uh, somewhat oversexed seeming environment. I'm not doing a very good job of describing this at all, but I, I'm also, I think, hard revealing that I, I didn't. Uh, hmm? It is hard to describe. Well, rather than try to describe it, I will play, uh, uh, I will have Cat play a little bit. You're going to hear uh, Dylan McDermott, one of the older uh, stars on this thing, uh, as Ernie West, and David Corensweet as Jack Castello, who is kind of the placeholder for the highly ambitious young person who emerges from service in World War II and comes to Los Angeles seeking fame and fortune. Some of my customers don't just come here for gas. They have uh, fantasies and desires. And for them, it ain't enough to watch a fantasy up on the big screen. They want it for themselves and I provide that for them. In a way, I'm no different than Louis B. Mayer. You know what I mean? No, Ernie, I have no idea what you mean. You see, some of them say a secret code word. You get in the car with them, have a drink maybe, and sometimes, sometimes you have to service them. You gotta, you gotta be kidding me. What? You don't like women? Sure, I like women. That's why I married one. All right, so let me ask you. You never cheated on her? No, uh, one time, one time. I was, I was on leave, I was drunk. And you're good. First time's always the hardest, and you got that one out of the way. You gotta be great. Oh, here's one right here. Jack, today is your lucky day. This one's special. Take it from me. No. No, no, no. Ernie, I'm not doing this. <laughs> I came here to be in pictures. I'm gonna be a movie star. This, this is not for me. I, I appreciate it. Look, you hired me to pump gas, I'll pump gas. This, forget it. So long. All right, well, you just missed out on a hundred bucks. So, are you gonna take it? I'm going to give it to one of the other guys. All right. So uh, where to begin? Well, I, Irene, I think because you committed to this uh, series uh, very, very significantly. <laughs> Maybe you can kind of get us going here. I, I'm getting the feeling you really liked it. You stayed with it. You stayed up late finishing it. Uh, what was it that grabbed you? Um, well, first of all, that scene was so great. And the sound with the with the cash register in it was really, it, it, you, you know, more highlighted just in, the, in listening to it. Um, I just loved it from the very, like, not from the very beginning, the first 15 minutes or so, I thought, oh, okay, yeah, I, I get this. It's one of, it's going to be one of those. But then it turned into something else right around the scene that we just heard. And it just didn't stop from there. And I loved You know, I just I just I really liked it. But to my uh, surprise, I discovered after I read some re reviews after I had seen the whole thing, um, a lot of people didn't like it um, for various reasons that I might have some answers to. But I think to me, it was that the acting was delightful. The spirit was delightful. The scenery and the sets were delightful. And I was just pulled in and sort of cheered up by the whole thing. Carolyn, That's how about story. you? Well, 
I didn't hate this one. So <laughs> that's a really good sign. Um, <laughs> Ryan Murphy is interesting to me because a lot of times I'll start a series of his and I'll like it or I'll like the concept of where he's going. And then about the midpoint of the the series, I'll kind of like lose interest in it. Like it just doesn't flesh out in a satisfying way to me for some reason. But like this, so this I intend to finish. I, I'm like about about halfway. I think there are like seven episodes, right? So yeah. um, I'm I'm about halfway through, and I really liked it. I'm I'm kind of I love like old Hollywood movies. So I thought this was kind of a fun reinterpretation of that. It, it sort of has that right quality that you're looking for in a show that's like easy to binge and uh, it holds your interest and that the performances are great and the look of it is, is great. I agree with Irene. Like I, I really, I really loved the, the look of it and that the sound, the soundtrack, the just everything that it was, I, I, I thought it was very, very well done. And uh, it, I think it is to me, of all the Ryan Murphy series, I, I think it's my favorite. I, I have to say that I'm probably the uh, skunk at this garden party. I, I didn't like it very much. One of the things that there are a couple of things that I struggled with. One of them was I found most of the young performers kind of vapid. I found myself uncharacteristically looking forward to Patti LuPone's appearances or or Dylan McDermott or Holland Taylor in particular. I, I'm, I really had enjoyed in, in some of her scenes. Um, there was a way in which, I don't know, these it could be my grumpy old manness. Uh, I'm always prepared to plead guilty, but I, I most of the, like the person playing Rock Hudson is just simply not as interesting to look well, at or no, watch work. he's not a very good Rock Hudson. <laughs> no, and, and really this other guy the, who's playing this kind of Costello, this kind of central character who's trying to rise up through the ranks, I find him very bland and, and not easy to get excited about. I know that's part of his story, that is there is there any there there with him? Can Holland Taylor discover any there there are in him and maybe I haven't gotten far enough into the series to know the answer but and, and the other question that I had I don't know I was sort of struggling with who these other people really are. I was trying to think about Hollywood post-war. There is, for example, a very beautiful young woman who's African-American. I guess, is that sort of supposed to be Diane Carroll? Um, I, I guess maybe a studio in somewhere between 48 and 52 would be maybe carrying a few contract players of the Diane Carroll type on their, on their roles. I just, I don't know. In terms of some kind of more inclusive understanding of what Hollywood was in this particular time I wrestled with the question of whether I was getting that or this highly lurid oversexed story of people having to put out to get what they want um, but but Irene you you found some meat on the bones of this thing clearly I I actually did I mean I because well part of it was that I was a um, I, I it really was a fantasy I was seeing it as a fantasy as opposed to um, even though there were a lot of historical, a lot of historical truths in a way in it. It wasn't, I don't think that the African-American woman was necessarily supposed to be anyone. It was that, you know, she, her role was the fantasy, somebody like her. And, um, but it, you know, it's interesting to, um, let me say, I'm just thinking out loud here, but you know, I just, cause I felt, I feel like if you, if you look at it with that, you know, how is it, it sort of reminded me of once upon a time in Hollywood in a certain way, because 
that also created a fantasy counterfactual that either, you know, some people hated it for that reason. And I liked it for that reason, too. You know, I think because it didn't. But maybe you know, I think I'm a very naive viewer. Like I never I haven't seen any of Ryan um, Murphy's other shows or anything. And I felt like the way that it had serious, it, it sort of it touched on serious issues in an interesting way, like, you know, but like the Me Too issue with men as opposed to women and, you know, which is a very real um, issue, like serious issues. But it also had a sense of humor. But I think it managed to balance the humor and the seriousness in a way that I found satisfying. I didn't feel like they were making fun of people, but they were being sort of light and funny. But they were also being serious about the, the some of the, some of the problems that they were exploring. All right, uh, Carolyn, you do get the last word this time, I think. Oh, goody. Um, I love a good guilty pleasure, and I think that that's where this show falls for me. It just, it has that quality that it has that like sexiness. I agree that like the younger actors in it are not great, but I accepted that that they were just supposed to not be great. Um, they they were there as a contrast to uh, the people who were actually, you know, who were great. And Patty Lapone is so spectacularly awful and wonderful in this. Um, I really, I really enjoyed her. And I think Holland Taylor is excellent almost always in everything she does. And I think that I agree that the scenes with them are, are definitely the strongest performance wise. But I think if you go into this show, just looking for a really like slickly polished uh, guilty pleasure, you're going to enjoy it. And so it is called Hollywood. It is available to you on Netflix, a seven-part miniseries by Ryan Murphy, one of the dominant auteurs in television these days. Uh, we're going to take a little break, and we're going to come back. Uh, I've left us ample time to make some recommendations. All right, uh, we are back. Uh, it is time for me to say some thank yous, especially to Cat Pastor, who is there in the studio right now making everything hum. Uh, and it uh, makes it possible for the others of us to work remotely. Uh, the others of us include the producer of this episode, Jonathan McPants. Uh, I should tell you that on Monday, we are trying to devote at least parts of our Monday shows to helping you understand some of the medical science of what's happening. A, because Betsy Kaplan, who produces those shows, is an actual nurse, and B, because I'm currently under the delusion that I'm a virologist because I've spent so much time <laughs> geeking out on this stuff. So anyway, we are going to have an actual real virologist once for the second time in, in, in two Mondays uh, on with us to uh, talk about all that. All right. So time to make some recommendations. Uh, Irene Papoulos, why don't you go first? All right. Well, I mean, just hearing that, I, I love that idea. I love I heard you talking to that other vi virologist. And I want to endorse that because in advance, because that's such a great idea to hear those details. But um, the thing I'm going to um, every, I think I'm sort of the last person in the world that is um, appreciating this. And so, but I'm going to endorse it anyway, because I think a lot of people in my demographic, maybe like the white, you know, older women of a certain age, maybe haven't seen it. But um, it's The Wire. You know, I'd never ah. watched it before. And my partner has been telling me for years, you're going to love it. You're going to love it. And I was like, yeah, gangs in Baltimore, whatever. Yeah, sure, maybe. 
but it's just so good. And I, you know, I mean, I had never had HBO until recently and to have it and just to be able to go on there and watch it is so great. And I know that Carolyn, Carolyn endorsed the Sopranos a few weeks ago. And I sort of feel like, okay, it's sort of along those same lines, something that everybody else knew about and it came and went, but the storytelling in that show is unbelievable. The layers of stories, the layers of uh, cultural critique, the layers of just like thinking about power in general, the personalities, the relationships are so good. Now I know what all the fuss was about 10, 15 years ago or whenever it was, but The Wire is really great. If you haven't seen it, I recommend it. I, I, can't, I can't endorse that more uh, or enough or something. I really regard it as the supreme accomplishment of television ever. Uh, and I, I don't know how many how many seasons in are you at this point? Uh, only a couple more in the last season. So oh, okay. Like, so, so you went yeah. through that fourth season, which is about the educational system. I mean, it's not all yeah. about drug gangs. I mean, the third season is really about politics, as I recall, uh, about urban politics. And the fourth season is about the schools. And, yeah. and it is... You just live and die with the fortunes of these kids. Uh, you know, it's all up against the background of this the incredible teachers, crime story. Yeah. But, and I, but, right. The yeah. And then the fifth season about newspapers. And that room looks like exactly like the Hartford Current newsroom, you know, that I've been in once. But their, their newsroom is like, oh, my gosh, it's the same thing. You know, it was a different right, era. Carolyn. Uh, what have you got? To, Irene Papoulis is endorsing The Wire. Uh, I co-endorse it. Uh, what have you got for us? Um. Okay, well, first of all, I have to say I never watched The Wire, um, and I just always hear such amazing things, so maybe I will have to explore it. If you can do The um, Sopranos, you can do The Wire. Yeah. I mean, I love Sopranos, and I'm endorsing two things. One of them today, to follow up on my Sopranos endorsement, is the um, Talking Sopranos podcast. Um, it's two co-stars from the Sopranos are doing this podcast and it's really, if you're a Sopranos fan, it's really, really fun. Um, so check that out. And also dead to me on Netflix is the second season just came out, uh, within the past week or so. Um, and it is Christina Applegate. Um, and I can't remember the other actress's name right now, but they are both so incredible. And again, it kind of falls into that like guilty pleasure, bingeable TV, but the, their performances are exceptional and it's really, uh, it, it's a really like dark comedy mystery. Um, so I highly recommend that. All right. So this, uh, watching the spring, oh, but it's Linda, Linda Carolini. Uh, yes, I believe I'm, be, I'm being told by a slack. Thank you. That that's who that who the other one is. As I recall, you did endorse the first season of it too when it first came out. So, um, so I'm I am so thrilled to be able to endorse. I'm just a I couldn't be a bigger fan of the Unbreakable uh, Kimmy Schmidt. And so they have. And I thought it was all gone forever. I would never see one again. But what they've done is, uh, and it's on Netflix. They have come up with this interactive special that kind of carries the story forward. It's done in a, in a similar mode to the uh, a Black Mirror episode that we actually watched and discussed uh, on the nose uh, where you and it's also very much in the in the vein of choose your own adventure so you come to these little forks in the road and using your remote you decide which thing should happen and there is sort of a right answer and a wrong answer most of the time and and one thing that's odd about it is that if you go through it once picking various things you'll find out at the end that Josh Groban is supposedly on the show but you won't have seen Josh Groban because you have to pick the right fork in the road to get to that point but 
as usual, I mean, the leads here are incredible, uh, and uh, especially Titus Burgess, who's just uh, out of this world, terrific, and Carol Kane, whom I worship, and Jane Krakowski, and it, the whole thing takes place against the backdrop of Kimmy's impending wedding. Her groom to be is played by Daniel Radcliffe. Daniel Radcliffe is a really, really good actor. Every time I see him in another thing, I think, wow, he is so much more than Harry Potter. And he is just terrific in this and really kind of delivers the, the comic goods in the way that he, he has to. And then I'm going to endorse a book that I'm reading. I think that I like this book because it's really, it's a detective story. It's one of these Nordic noir detective stories. It's called The Chestnut Man by Soren Sveistrup. Um, and I'm doing it on Audible. It is really, really well read and really, really well voiced. And although it's about really, really grisly murders, I think I like it because it's also a debate about competence, like who, which detective is having the most competent response to it, or what's the most competent way to think about this? How are two detectives going to cut through a lot of bureaucratic nonsense uh, and wind up doing the right thing uh, about this? And, and so there's a way in which it, I think, parallels some of the anxieties that I feel right now in which, you know, the Anthony Fauci's of this world, the highly competent virologists of this world don't seem to have the same kind of traction as, uh, you know, as people who are, let's say, less wise and less competent. So uh, it's called The Chestnut Man. I recommend doing it on, on Audible if you do, if you like doing audio books. And I also uh, recommend uh, that the next chance you get, you have an actual conversation with Carolyn Payne, actress, comedian, dancer, a founder, director, and choreographer of Kinetic Dance, Irene Papoulis, teacher of writing at Trinity College. They have been our panelists this week. They're fun to talk to at a party, but there probably won't be any parties for a really long time. So thank uh, Thanks to both of you. Thanks to all of you who listen. And uh, thanks to Grace and Hugh for taking us out here. Talk about Torrington, Vernon, Danbury, Waterbury, Oliveberry, Woodbury, hitting on New Britain, Vernon, I already said that one, Avon, Farmington, yeah, 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 yeah.